you should not take anyone's word in stone for anything. The whole reason we got into all this mess in the first place is because the sheepishness of our society. So welcome back to another episode of Alpaca. Our guest today is Tristan Scott, an electrical engineer and semiconductors who delve deep into health, nutrition, and regenerative agriculture after post-concussive syndrome. He is also the author of the book Bitcoin and Beef, Criticisms, Similarities, and Why Decentralization Matters, and is the co-host of Decentralized Radio. Thank you so much, Tristan, for joining us at our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate it. Let's start with your journey down the health and nutrition rabbit hole after several concussions from playing elite level soccer. Elite, yeah. College, at least. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a rough bout. So, yeah, I had a few concussions in my playing career. And then actually, the last one I suffered was not from soccer. And that was really the problem because I actually didn't know that I sustained a concussion kind of lost consciousness and then hit my head and didn't know that. So I really just did nothing right in the subsequent two weeks after. If you know anything about concussions or injuries, the acute recovery phase is imperative for healing. I did all the wrong things. I went skiing like a few days after. I was sitting for finals. That was miserable. And then I flew on a plane like a week later to go to Europe to go see my family and also ski and yeah, that was just way too much. And even in the subsequent month or two after when I was still feeling bad, I was trying to exercise, I was drinking, things you do in college that are not conducive for healing concussion. And then, yeah, I didn't get better, no surprise. And three, four months later of daily headaches, extreme irritability, sensitive to light, sound, kind of classic concussion symptoms, I finally got a appointment with a neurologist and was really excited for him to tell me that he thought I had a concussion because, you know, once you figure out the problem, you can figure out the solution. But then I went from a high to a low very quickly when he told me to just, quote unquote, take it easy and try and get back into my normal routine, which is kind of what I had been already doing for the past three months. It wasn't working at all. So it's really a dark place for me after that. And yeah, after my college semester finished up, I was in Oregon for an internship and got reconnected with nature in the outdoors, hiking, camping. And I felt a lot better in nature when I wasn't working or wasn't in a city. It just felt better. Symptoms kind of went away. That made me motivated. I then started like a meditation practice, which made me even more motivated to find out some solutions on my own. Also really stubborn person because I was like, how could I just go from being a really high functioning individual engineering student college athlete, doing a ton to just not being able to exercise at all, barely being able to get through my coursework. So I just wasn't having that that was like the new normal for me. And I was like, if I could get 10, 20, 30% better, it would make leaps and bounds of a difference in my life. So I just listened to one podcast or read one book. And then I was like, I'm hooked on trying to figure out this issue. So after that, I just began consuming as much as I could in that space and trying different lifestyle habits, different diet, different supplements, and ultimately that helped me a lot. So that was kind of end of 2018. I started trying, researching a ton, and I graduated college in 2019. And six months later, I was feeling a ton better, 
ran a marathon to like celebrate being able to exercise again, which is probably not a good idea. It's a little too much. But from there, I was hooked. I was all about the health and wellness space because it healed me from a problem that the traditional medical system could not solve for me. And I wanted to keep researching and keep empowering other people because what I discovered was there's a lot of similar stories out there, you know, self-healing rabbit holes people have gone down, just given the cookie cutter basic approach from their classic doctor and specialists. There's people who would go to tens of specialists like my podcast co-host Ryan and still no answers. Uh, but then when they kind of got into the health optimization, esoteric health space, that's more kind of holistic more traditional, they found solutions. So I got really into that. I got really into diet and nutrition, learned about our food system. Then inherently, I got really into regenerative agriculture. My sister lived in Wyoming. It's now where I live and started buying half quarter beeps from a local rancher, getting connected with the food system. Got really passionate about that when I started learning. So yeah, it kind of led me to writing a book about regenerative ag and beef and what's wrong. And there's a lot of these narratives floating around. And I was just wanted to put myself out there and get to the facts because I'm a fact-based person. And, but I understood that these topics were all like so nuanced. And to me, it was like, if I could heal myself, I just want to empower other people to do the same and wake them up from the mainstream advice that's been given in all facets of life, which is probably, as you know, quite off the mark from having people live their most optimal life. So what was your doctor's appointments like when you had this concussive syndrome? But you went to the doctor and what was the advice they gave you? What was the process you went through? Yeah, well, the first problem was it took about a month and a half to get an appointment, which was already like a ridiculous thing. And then I got an EEG, which measures kind of brain waves and, and things like that. They're looking for like seizure-like symptoms, which I uh, showed up completely fine, even though now I know about brain waves and the fact that you could, if you knew more about brain waves, you could probably tell that someone was concussed. But regardless, he said that he thought I had a concussion. And then I said, what can I do? And he was like, just try and ease your way back into exercise, into your coursework. And uh, if you don't feel better in a couple months, come back. And uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm happy that he didn't prescribe me any painkillers or anything like that. But it was just like such terrible. There's nothing concrete about the advice. It was really bad. And I even had a concussion in high school where this doctor was pretty progressive given the time. It was like 2013 in high school. And this guy was like, I'm going to put you on like X, Y, and Z vitamin. I don't even remember what it was. I know CoQ10 was one of them. And he's like, and you're going to go to physical therapy and do like some physical therapy for your head. So it's like that guy in 2013, at least I respected he was trying to have some sort of intervention. Whereas this doctor in 2018 was just telling me to literally just do nothing and just kind of try and heal myself magically from doing nothing. This happened to you pre-pandemic. I think for me, it seems like the world's kind of split ever since the pandemic, where you have the people that were really following the advice of the CDC and the government and those that were kind of like, hey, like Jay Bhattacharya and the guy who actually invented the MRN technology, Dr. Robert Malone, are being canceled. And it, it seems like you were ahead of the curve, at least realizing this before the pandemic. But it seems like now, I don't know why anyone would trust the so-called establishment. 100%. Yeah, it's kind of funny, actually, because, yeah, I had this, like, wake-up call in, in 
really like 2018, 2019, got my own health like in order. And I remember I moved out to California for my first job uh, late 2019 and into early 2020. And I was all about it. And I was listening to all these decentralized kind of health uh, experts, you want to call them that, or people just like going against the grain of traditional healthcare advice. And then big against, against farm, like big pharma, I should say. Then all of a sudden COVID happened and it was like, wow, everything that I was realizing and waking up to now is like brought to the forefront. And it was hilarious for me to see how many people kind of just like flipped back over. Because even in 2019 and years prior, if you remember, like people were starting to, even on the left, were starting to dig into like big pharmaceutical companies for price gouging on medicines, insulin, what have you. And then all of a sudden, all this trust just came back out of nowhere for the greater good. But yeah, for me, it kind of just solidified my ideology, my perspective, who I want to be around and what do I want to learn about. And if you've read my book, I go into just like the pure factual data that you can't debate about all these big companies, big pharmaceutical companies, big agriculture, big banks how many fines they've paid, how many violations they paid, subsidies received. We're talking billions on billions of dollars from these companies that are just breaking the law at will and really just getting like a slap on the wrist. So that showed me even further that the whole centralized system is extremely corrupt and not at all working for the individual in society. So we have Tristan Scott here, author of Bitcoin and Beef, and let's just start with the beef side of things. Why is beef healing when you have these concussive protocols and you've learned all this stuff going down this rabbit hole? What is it about beef? Yeah, you know, I, I chose beef because it was something that was being demonized in the mainstream media, and it's not like, you know, beef is the ultimate food. There's a lot of really nutrient-dense foods out there. But I wanted to bring it down to what's the most thought of red meat, and that's what's being demonized. I personally think from a nutrition perspective that animal foods are above and beyond the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. And if you actually know anything about nutrition, about uh, bioavailability of nutrients, it's undebatable. And I write about that in the book, and that includes beef. It includes other foods like other red meat sources, fish and eggs and things like that, organ meats as well. But, you know, beef is, just became the scapegoat for climate change. And to me, it didn't make any sense because ruminants have been grazing the earth for thousands of years. That's why I chose beef and then wrote about it. But for me, yeah, it became the center of my diet when I was healing, right? Like a high protein, a high nutrient density diet. And then I also went on a ketogenic diet for a four-month period, which was really helpful for healing my brain to get a high ketone flow in the body from cutting carbohydrates, which I'm not keto anymore, but that was profound in my healing experience, in my journey. And yeah, I was eating a ton of meat, a ton of beef, and I was sourcing that meat from a local rancher that I personally knew. I met, I saw the cattle, I saw what they were doing, uh, which to me is huge because there's a spectrum of quality uh, in the meat industry and you can't verify that quality if you just go to the grocery store. And again, there's nuance in all these topics. I'm not a fan of industrial feedlot beef at all. There's four companies that control 80% of the global beef supply. That's ridiculous. It's more top heavy than any other industry. And 
that is a byproduct of our centralized system. So the whole book is about decentralization and even give some credit to vegans for making a conscious change in their lifestyle habit because it is a conscious change. But I'm not fighting vegans. I'm fighting industrial agriculture and centralized systems. If you want to buy all your produce locally and be a very decentralized vegetarian or vegan, by all means, that's awesome. But I still think you're going to be lacking in some nutrients. But at the end of the day, the argument is not of diet wars. It's really of the system and, and bringing it back to local high quality because that's the only way you can control the quality is if it's local and decentralized. But beef, animal foods were imperative in, in my healing journey and they're imperative in my daily lifestyle still today. And I've never felt better than I have here now going on five and a half years post-injury. Where do you think this whole vegan push has come from? You have Bill Gates, who's buying up all his farmland and invested in numerous kind of fake meat products. And there's so much more profit to be made in these fake meats than there is in actual meat. And it's interesting because when I talk to vegans or vegetarians, I don't like the word plant-based diet because I think it's a little bit too positive. It's really not that healthy. But when you talk to these vegans, they act as if they're not eating processed food but then it's like they're eating fake beef and or excuse me they're eating fake bacon like i'll like oh i'm having a blt it's like okay so you're having this processed fake meat and all the food that they're eating is highly processed so they're eating more processed food than if they were just to be eating meat and just being a traditional omnivore yeah 100 percent, and and that you nailed it right there because it's just a facade really because it's not healthier especially because of the majority of vegans or vegetarians eating more processed foods inherently that's why I said, if you got a vegetarian who was only eating like real one ingredient produce, sure, by all means, go for it. That's better. But why is this occurring? Yeah, profitization. When you take a product and process it further, you create more value add, you use cheap subsidized ingredients like canola, corn, soy. It's all artificially low in price because of the subsidies, the billions of dollars of subsidies that our government hands out as a result of poor management of our farming system over ag system in the 20th century and government interventionalist policy, now they have to make more money. And this is where Bitcoin and the monetary system comes into play. When we're on a fully fiat monetary system and you want to be a successful company, you have to keep growing. You have to keep coming up with new products, with new stuff to push, better margins, lower costs, or guess what? No investor is going to keep funneling money your way. And why have we seen all these companies pop up in the past few years? Because they're all on zero interest loans from 2012 to 2020, 2022, actually, until they started hiking interest rates recently. It was like free money for anyone. And how can Oatly spend $100 million on marketing a year and even exist? Well, they barely, they don't make any money, but they still exist because of that zero interest loans. But we see this uh, now with Beyond Meat, Impossible, whatever burgers, they're failing because the market is rejecting them. They taste like crap. They're not good for you. The only people who are buying this are just like been psyoped into the fact that they're doing better by the planet, which is a total fallacy. And it's people like Bill Gates, as you said, who are just moving this message forward with their massive influence. And if you know anything about Bill Gates, yeah, he's buying up farmland probably just to get more carbon credits as part of this whole ESG movement. 
And if you really want to get scared of what he's doing, you can go look into his investments in like seed banks and what he's invested in in Africa to just fuel more industrial agriculture forward. And yeah, it's really infuriating when if you just step back from everything, think logically, whole one ingredient foods raised from the land in a biodiverse system, not monocrop, you know, one crop for thousands of acres sprayed with glyphosate and known carcinogen is better for our health, better for the health of the planet. And if we keep it locally, it's better for the local economy. It's really sad. And I think it's a byproduct of a broken monetary system uh, at the highest level. What was the biggest thing you learned when you're researching this book related to beef or meat that you're surprised about? Just the centralization and the money going into subsidies, really. So like I said, there's four companies, JBS, Cargill, Tyson, National Beef. They're controlling 80% of the beef supply. And we are shipping so much U.S. meat overseas to Korea, China, Taiwan. And we're importing so much beef from Canada, Mexico, but then also Australia, New Zealand, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil. Why are we doing that? Because these companies are multinational. They're global conglomerates that control the entire supply chain. The labeling by the USDA is not strict at all. They could have an animal raised in Argentina and then repackage it in a plant in the U.S. and call it U.S. beef. And most of the stores that carry grass-fed beef, unless it says born, harvested, and raised in the USA, it is not from America. And talk about a waste of energy shipping all this back and forth. Talk about breaks in our supply chain. What happens when all the cargo ships are waiting to dock outside LA? Oh, we found out in COVID, right? The grocery store shelves are empty. Oh, well, what are you going to do? You don't have anything to eat after two days. That's the whole problem. And it's really scary from a food security perspective. But then, of course, the quality is just such a big question mark. So for me, that was the biggest eye opener and the amount that these companies pay in marketing and how much control they have over the USDA and the processing facilities being such a bottleneck and how much regulation is in there. Yeah, it was fascinating to me and really makes you value your local food producers at the highest level and just want to know, like... I want to go there and see what they're doing. And on the positive note, however, I will say the book is not all negative, is that the way you raise your animals dictates how nutrient dense it is and how effective it is at restoring the health of the environment, the soil health. And if you care about carbon, sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, putting it in the ground. And that to me is the real magic and that's done through the proper management of ruminant animals and livestock. In your book, you talked about life expectancy is not a very good measure to evaluate how successful you are in terms of how healthy you are. I, I lived in South Korea. I taught English there. And everyone knows the Korean barbecue. They eat a bunch of beef. They all smoke. And they're all pretty much alcoholics. They also work insane amount of hours. When I, I taught English there, the kids still went to school every other Saturday. Can you imagine American kids going to school on a weekend? I mean, these people would riot. But they, of course, have a higher life expectancy than people in the U.S. And again, doing it according, according to the 
you know, the mainstream people, they're doing everything wrong. They're eating a bunch of beef, they're smoking, they're drinking like fish, and they're working and they have high stress, yet they live longer. Can you talk about in your book where you talk about life expectancy and maybe it's not the best barometer and how the number is fairly evasive in terms, or maybe not evasive is the word, but it's fairly distorted in how they actually use that number. Yeah, for sure. And the Korea is a great example. I think Hong Kong's another one. Those are funny examples because they go against like the blue zones that were very handpicked. I think we need to talk about that. But in the book, I specifically just talk about it being a poor barometer for measuring the progress of societal health. Because, you know, everyone's, you know, we're so much healthier, we're living longer. The average life expectancy is 80. A hundred years ago was 57. I just, I don't know what it was exactly, but probably something like that. And that's just a really poor indicator because there was such a high quantity of infant mortality and childbirth deaths that occurred back then. And a lot of those infant mortality deaths were from infectious diseases and modern sanitation and things like that really helped that out. And there were some great benefits in in the world of antibiotics, but really just modern sanitation was kind of like the biggest needle mover and figuring out sewage and, and water quality as well. Not that our tap water quality is any good nowadays, but it's at least not killing people. But at the same time, when you have a family of four and one of your kids dies at eight because of diphtheria, the average life expectancy of your family, even if everyone lives to 80, is, is going to be a lot lower everyone else. So it's a distorted thought that we're living longer because we're really not. There's plenty of people back then living into their 80s, 90s, but the average was just so skewed. And then military conflict, world wars, there's a lot more battles in that regard that took a large percentage of the male population, at least a higher percentage than now, because a lot of the wars are very technically not like guerrilla warfare style anymore. But in general, people think we're healthier as a society. I mean, maybe not. Maybe people don't think that now. But the reality is, all of the deaths are as a result of chronic disease instead of infectious diseases. So in the U.S., the numbers are just staggering. And I think it's like 40% of U.S. or 60% of U.S. adults have a chronic disease and 40% of two or more. The amount of medications people are on average, uh, you know, 35, 40% obesity. It's just insane. And for the first time, we have this overconsumption of calories, deficiency of nutrients, And we're even seeing this poor barometer of life expectancy is actually falling off. It's actually going down now for the first time in like history in the United States. And we are lagging heavily behind other developed nations. And it's because we are the fueled society by heavily processed foods, the most amount of pollutants, there's the worst lifestyle habits through and through. And it's really sad. And if you look at these other blue zones or Hong Kong's or South Korea's, it's hard to pinpoint uh, what it is they're doing. Um, But again, you're looking backwards in the mirror a little bit because all these folks that are in their 80s, 90s now, they grew up 70 years ago, 60 years ago. The U.S. for sure had the most amount of industrialization early on. So the most amount of toxins, the first ones with all these toxic food products. We were just the first for all this crap. 
And now it's really penetrating. The Western influence is penetrating society. My mom's from Europe. I grew up going to Austria every summer when I was little. When I was very little, none of this stuff existed. It was, it was very high quality ingredients, local foods, and it's still like that. It's still way better than here. And there's still so many ingredients and food that are banned in Europe that are allowed in the United States and probably the same in, in areas like Korea and, and Hong Kong. But maybe it's a accumulation effects. But either way, you could say that lifespan is, is not a good indicator of how far we've come because if you take all those data points that are heavily obscure out of the norm, like infant mortality, death from battle, death from childbirth, we're really not living longer at all. But even worse is the fact that these new medications are allowing us to increase the lifespan without even touching the health span. My grandma is a great example. She's 85 now or 84. She's been in a nursing home for 10, 10 plus years. And there's people going to nursing homes at 60, 65. They get a chronic disease and they live in there for 20 years. That's not the quality of life that we should be striving for at the societal level. So I think it's very nuanced. It's a very terrible metric. But even this terrible metric is showing how bad the U.S. is. The U.S. starting in 2014, actually, that's when the life expectancy was shortening. Yeah. And then a very solid metric is how tall people are. Up to the 1960s, people in the United States and America... We're the tallest in the world. And then since the 70s, I believe we've lost like four inches of height. People in the Netherlands or Sweden are significantly taller, which is a pretty good barometer. But that goes all the way back four decades, five decades. Yeah, that's interesting. I think probably we also have a lot more people from other cultures coming in, bringing that down. But that's a good one. If you look at like the Mormons or LDS people as a small picture of society within the United States, they're all like very tall and yeah, that's for sure. It's nutrient availability, the proper lifestyle that's going to continue to fuel like a, a tall population. So that that's a cool metric that I think not a lot of people look into. What do you think is the main driver behind this? I always find it interesting when people are like, oh, I Googled it. It's like, oh, okay, so you read a blog, which maybe you read my blog and someone's trying to sell you something. Anything you Google is essentially an advertisement. But people are like, oh, yeah, like I, I Googled it, you know, or they like they fact check. I mean, fact checking is essentially Googling something. But when do you feel like we've reached this point where up is down, down is up? You know, like anything, you're better off. Whatever they tell you, just do the opposite. We're at that point. And I, when I was younger, that wasn't the, the point where we were at. Yeah. And uh, well, going back to your first question, what is causing all this and I, it, it's funny because I tweeted out this morning, everyone has their own angle, what is causing modern chronic disease, processed foods, seed oils, blood sugar spikes, water quality, grains, glyphosate, non-aided VMFs, artificial light, lack of movement, lack of connection. And I said, in reality, it's all of these things. Literally, it's all of them. And you could debate which ones are more important than others. Recently, I've, I've dove deep into kind of the more quantum side of health. So looking at the sunlight, and how that fuels our bio biology, like the electromagnetism piece of it. And it's fascinating for sure. But the way I see it is we have a diet that's devoid of nutrients. We never go outside anymore because everyone says that the sun is bad for us when in reality we're designed to harness the energy from the sun and it fuels 
literally all of our biology is driven by light signals, sleep. If you want a good sleep, you need to have a good, good light environment. And sleep is restorative. It heals your body. So now we have all these toxins, glyphosate, plastics, endocrine disruptors. The water is full of pollutants. The air is full of pollutants. If we want to detoxify and restore our body, we need you know restorative sleep. But if you have a junk light environment, if you're just sitting on your phone, your screens all day, eating 25 times a day, foods that are extremely high in you know, a glycemic index, processed ingredients, they're all damaging my, your mitochondria and your mitochondria is, is producing your body's energy. Aside from the energy you're getting from the sun, which you're not getting because you're not going outside or you're wearing sunscreen. So it's just everything. There's more stressors and you're damaging your body's ability to deal with those stressors. So inherently, we're seeing chronic disease skyrocket because we just live such an unnatural lifestyle compared to what our biology was designed to do. Whatever your topic is or your niche, go pick one. Yeah, it's bad for you. Is it the number one issue? Probably not. I don't know. It depends. And it depends on your situation, depends on where you live, depends what you're next to and what can you prioritize in, in improving is probably the most important thing to figure out because some people can't just go up and quit their job, but they might be able to, you know, move a little more, or eat a little better. And in terms of advice, yeah, it's just gotten worse. Now there's articles coming out saying exercise is right wing. And, you know, there's a new article once a year, how red meat causes cancer. And it's just a bunch of nonsense. So again, I really implore people to take a step back at everything and just think logically, is the sun bad for you? You know, this something that is literally the only reason that life on earth exists is because we're in this optimal zone in solar system to absorb sunlight and the energy from it for all life. Something that we lived outside, there was no uh, you know, indoor living really until recently in history. Um, so same with food. If it grows in the earth or comes of the earth as in the form of an animal, would it be inherently bad for you? Probably not. Um, so you, maybe you want to start thinking about things like in that context and does it make sense if you're putting something on your skin that has 200 chemicals in the ingredient list, do you think that's good for you? Would you eat it? If you wouldn't eat it, why are you putting it on your skin? <laughs> so how how old are you? Me? I'm 27. Do you think that a lot of 27-year-olds think the way you do? Or do you think you're in the minority of 27-year-olds in terms of like global warming and these concepts okay. of beef and whatnot? The health, you know, the healthcare system, et cetera. I don't think I could be more different from the average 27 year old, to be honest, which is really sad. Yeah. The young population might even be more captured. I think there's a shift happening now. Again, I think COVID woke a lot of people up. I think there's some positive trends going on. I have some friends that I grew up with that asked me questions online. And I've met on Twitter some great people in this space that are also my age and yeah, there's a lot of folks that are into Bitcoin or into the esoteric health space and trying to bridge these communities together in the love for decentralization and personal individual sovereignty to live the most optimal life. And most of my friends, most of the people I hang out with on a daily basis or talk to, 
yeah, they're all probably five, 10 years older than me on average, but it's cool for me because I've been going at this for five years on this journey. So I've learned a ton. And when I meet someone younger than me and I see how they've become empowered at an even younger age, it's really inspiring because I think the average 18 to 25 year old is really in a dark place right now. And it's terrifying because this is the next generation, right? It's supposed to be the next generation. And even looking high schoolers or middle schoolers and uh, it's just heartbreaking really to see what's happened. But overall, I'm, I mean, I live in an echo chamber. I don't know. I talk to people that have the same mindset as me. Mostly I live in Wyoming. There's not a lot of people out here. And even the people who are out here are probably more free thinking than the average East Coast city slicker. So I live in an echo chamber, but I'm not disillusioned to how insane an average 27-year-old is in big cities or something like that. They're all just focused on, you know, barstool sports or whatever 27-year-olds do. Yeah, it's it's probably true. You're more focused on chasing women if you're a, a guy and the opposite. No, who knows nowadays, but I mean, I was used to what you do. So just kind of s- switching. I mean, let's just kind of go back to the title, Bitcoin and Beef, Criticisms, Similarities, and Why Decentralization Matters. How are you comparing Bitcoin to beef in this book? Yeah, comparing them because they have similar criticisms, bad for the environment. Bitcoin consumes, you know, more energy than a European country. And Elizabeth Warren set up a task force to destroy Bitcoin because it's wasting all the energy in the world and can consume all the world's energy by next year. Or Thunberg is saying that if we have one more power plant, we're really not going to make it to 2030 or something like that. So that's a big fallacy, and that's a cool similarity between the two, because beef, bad for the planet, climate change. Guess what? There's nuance in there, because regenerative agriculture, regenerative raising of livestock can actually sequester carbon, and uh, if you raise them the right way, they will emit less carbon, because if you feed them all grass, they won't have this enteric fermentation of the grains, which is really an unnatural product, so it'll be less, and can have a net negative carbon burger if you treat them right with the soil health as the white oak pastures does in Bluffton, Georgia. And then Bitcoin mining. Wow, what a technical topic. Can't believe the New York Times journalist got it wrong, right? You need to understand the dynamics of the electrical grid, which is a joke and state-by-state variance. So if you don't know about that or you don't know how Bitcoin actually works, you're probably not going to have a good perspective on whether it's bad for the environment or not. But in reality, it's one of the most flexible consumers, the most flexible consumer of energy that has ever existed. Yes, it does require a lot of energy, but that's why it's decentralized because that's the proof of work that goes into the Bitcoin network. Otherwise, it would just be another centralized system that anybody could take advantage of and change the fundamentals such as the supply, ruining the program's scarcity. But if you know anything about energy production, you know how much energy is wasted, whether it be via transmission, just grid dynamics, and you know it's a very fickle process to keep the grid at 60 hertz and there's demand response is imperative in times where there's high supply or low supply for high demand times in the summer 
or the winter when people are cranking the AC or the heat. And Bitcoin miners have proved to be very helpful in that regard. Going offline, Texas grid, winter storm last December, there's recent uh, right now, actually, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, Bitcoin miners going offline in Texas as well due to just high demand period for high temperatures and uh, little winds coming in. Tragic that renewable energy sources are, are very variable and they're not consistent. So you're actually adding more fragility to the grid and Bitcoin miners help smooth that demand response. So again, there's a similarity, right? There's highly nuanced, highly technical topics. Why would I expect the average person to ever dive deeper? You know, would journalists ever really go and do their homework, which is completely against their agenda? And it's not going to happen. So you have to go do that yourself. And that's why I wrote this book, because it's fascinating. But what it all comes back to is the money, right? And I said that earlier, like when you have a broken monetary system, all companies in any industry, tech, food, cosmetics, apparel, all they need to do, they need to keep growing because if they don't keep growing, they're just going to fall behind. Inflation's 2% on average since 1970 or whatever. Yeah, no, not really. It's probably like 5 to 6%. And we had 10% inflation a year and a half ago, which was probably like 20% inflation. And everything's doubled in price. So how are companies going to keep ahead of that? They have to just keep growing the top line. We have to keep growing our GDP or else the whole fiat monetary system collapses. And the only way you do that is by selling more shit, selling more stuff, making more profit. So you have to lower costs and you have to come up with new ideas. And that's where we're getting all this manipulation of food products. Now it's like lab grown meat, you know, let's build factories because that creates economic growth. Um, and then we'll sell lab meat because there's higher profit margins because when you streamline something, you can just crank them out. And uh, yeah, nature doesn't work like that. Nature is truly decentralized. So the proof of work comes in when the cow is grazing the land and absorbing those nutrients from the forage, which they're getting that from the soil. And that is being translated to you only after that proof of work has been put in a certain amount of time. And you can't just shortcut that or else you're shortcutting quality. And we see that with feedlot beef and they're injecting meat with, you know, just fillers and, and liquids to puff it up. And it's a real tragedy, but that's what happens when you have broken money. There's no incentivizing uh, doing things the right way because the incentives are all misaligned through subsidies and things like that. So there's so much similarity, um, but really it's the foundational mindset of Bitcoiners and people who are into health, people who are into regenerative agriculture, ranchers, producers. We're all tired of this. We're tired of outsourcing the quality of our lives to these centralized systems that are wronging us. We want to be in the driver's seat. I know I did. I had a concussion, took away all of my ability to live the life I wanted to live. And I never wanted that to happen ever again. So now I'm so passionate about being in the driver's seat of my life. I'm the owner of my health. So I'm now outside of the system. I don't need to go to the doctor every six months, 12 months. I mean, I'm 27. Like, 
You don't need to go to the doctor. You need to pay out the woo for health insurance or medications or visits that they're not even going to help me out. For emergencies, yeah, if I broke my arm or something, that's a different story. And then the financial system. The banks are failing because people have figured out that banks lend out $10 to every $1 they hold. Things are getting ugly. So people are looking to alternatives. And Bitcoin is the best form of money that's ever been created because it's the only one with true fundamental scarcity that can never be altered. You know, you mentioned Warren Buffett in your book, and I, I always find it interesting because we've been in the Bitcoin space for quite a while, but I find it interesting when the average person somehow thinks that they're smarter than Warren Buffett. He, of course, called it rat poison, but his, of course, premise is that it's a non-producing asset. There's no dividends. It doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't produce anything. It's not real estate where you have rent. It's not land where you can maybe grow beef or crops. Is every Bitcoiner smarter than Warren Buffett? Warren Buffett, the the greatest investor. And if it wasn't for the fact that he donated the vast majority of his wealth to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which of course I think maybe shows you what kind of person he is, he probably would still be the richest person in the world if he didn't give away $50 billion of his wealth going back over a decade. And he would far surpass Elon Musk or any of these people based on $50 billion that he's given away over well over a decade. Yeah. I mean, what what's one of Warren Buffett's like biggest characteristics that has done him well. It's it's low time preference, right? It's compound interest over a long period of time. It took him decades to really make his wealth what it what it is, what it was, uh, partially. And, you know, that's a fundamental thing that Bitcoiners embody, right? It's low time preference. They get carried away. We get carried away every bull cycle. But at the end of the day, if you're buying Bitcoin, uh, truly, as a Bitcoiner, you are at least committing to like four or five years. And a lot of people tell you like 10, 20 years because they believe that this is a solution to a broken monetary system. Warren Buffett started investing when the money was still partially, it was bagged by gold, right? It's just a different environment. And he's made his wealth. There's not really any upside for him to just like promote Bitcoin. And if you look at the same time who he's invested in, he owns a very large percentage of Bank of America and all these centralized corporations. It's really not in his best interest to endorse something like that. And it's a lot easier to dismiss it. And, you know, of that age, yeah, tangibility of something is, is important. So, you know, he doesn't really grasp that concept of the advantage of being native to the internet. And that's okay. People need to respect Warren Buffett, but I don't think it's really like our Bitcoiners smarter than him. It's, you know, it's, it's past his, past his prime, past his age. His critique is that it's a non-producing asset. He's never been a fan of gold. He's never been a fan of silver because they're also non, they're not producing assets. It's not that he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand the fact that it's a non-producing asset. He's never been a fan of gold. He actually bought gold a few times because it was just, it was so, it was so lowly priced. I think he did it like in the seventies or something when it was, it was really just, it was like too stupid not to buy it. But his thing is like, it's a non-producing asset. He only buys producing assets. It doesn't matter. Like I said, it could be gold, silver, it could be Bitcoin. That's his main holdup. It's now that he's not understanding the tech. He doesn't care about the tech. He cares about the fact that it's not producing. Yeah. And that's fair. If you want to make that argument, sure. But most assets also don't appreciate like the amount that Bitcoin has and for eight, 12 years, like the whole cycles. So it is what it is. You know, I think uh, 
it's it's not his style at all and that's something that he'll live with or will live without i don't actually believe in bitcoin i think bitcoin is a scam i wouldn't be surprised if the cia or the nsa started i mean who who created the internet it was darpa who created tor it was the u.s navy who created mosaic the first browser it was another government entity who created google well Sergey Brin and, and Larry Page, they got their funding from DARPA, right? Like all this stuff that goes back to the internet was all created by a government entity. And I think this is kind of like the Trojan horse. Now we have the world coin where they're getting people to actually do proof of personhood where you got to scan your iris. And now we're going to have these central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. It was released during the recession in 08, came out in 09. And it was just perfect timing, but it wasn't the first digital currency. They had previous things before this. So they were just waiting to release it at the right time. It's kind of a joke. All the Bitcoiners, when they find out who they are, it's going to be a kind of a fuck you to them. It's kind of the way I look at it. I have a few friends that say the same thing. I think it's highly doubtful. I think the Trojan horse argument, um, yeah, I mean, it's fair. For sure, the Bitcoin becoming a mainstream item that people know about has led to the proliferation of CBDCs for sure. But this doesn't change the fact that it's fundamentally consensus required to do anything to the blockchain. And uh, at this point, this take a very large amount of effort and almost an unimaginable amount of effort to do anything to alter the fundamentals of Bitcoin. Um, and if they even got to that level of hash rate, they'd only be able to make a minor change. So to me, it seems unlikely with that regard, but that's always a possibility. But I think fundamentally, it's the best form of money that's been created. And if you're skeptical about it, don't put 100% of your money into Bitcoin. Put 10%, 20% into Bitcoin, put some into gold, some into silver, buy some guns. Your fiat is fucked. Like we know that. So diversify into more decentralized hard assets. Obviously, it's never always the right decision to have all your bags in one area, but I don't know. I think a lot of people have a very negative mindset on everything that's going on in the world. So I try to remain optimistic. And I think the momentum that we have is combating this mainstream negative force that's going on. And I think we have the ability to really change but it's, it could get ugly. It might get ugly. There could be more chaos. Bitcoiners want the price to go to a million like tomorrow. That's That would be a chaotic world to be in. So there's a lot of things that could play out. The future's never been more uncertain. So all, all you can do is diversify and build up real skills and real strength and shake your rancher's hand, have a food source, learn how to shoot some guns and be prepared for whatever. Bitcoin's open source, but there's only five people that actually have keys to actually change the source code. Mike Hearn and Gavin Andreessen, some of the early actual maintainers of the source code, basically don't like it anymore. Mike Hearn sold all of his Bitcoin. You had Bitcoin Jesus, aka Roger Ver, who has retired with his billions in St. Kitts, and he has nothing to do with Bitcoin. We still keep our Bitcoin just because... It is what it is, but I agree with you. I don't think you want to put your life savings into it. 
Yeah, diversification is key, but at the end of the day, if I became a Bitcoin billionaire, I would sell a lot of it too and realize those gains and buy land and a bunch of areas. So it's, I, it's like a different perspective completely. You can't even like fathom being in that situation. And, you know, I've very well connected friends too that are not Bitcoin billionaires, but they're successful entrepreneurs. And they're very bullish on Bitcoin. So you get a mixed bag and nobody really knows. So anyone thinks they got it figured out, um, that's... I feel like they're bullish because a big chunk of their wealth is wrapped up in it. So if Bitcoin tanks vast majority of their wealth, it's like the podcaster Peter McCormack of what Bitcoin did. A guy basically was buying weed for his, it was his mom, whatever, and... Silk Road went down, so he had a bunch of Bitcoin. And now if he got rid of his Bitcoin, he'd be poor. So these people have to pump it. They have to pump it. I mean, these whales can predict when they're going to pump the price of Bitcoin because they can do wash pumping. And then ever since Tether was created, which the whole thing is a scam, right? Then that's tied to FTX and Sam Bankman fried and like Alex Mashinsky, he'll just lie right to your face. Like these are the people involved in this space, and that doesn't even include... Doquan, and you can just name the scammers. Like, the fact is, more people have been scammed in crypto than not. The early adopters have crushed it, don't get me wrong, but now they've, they're have they just, like, trying to pump it up to keep their bags full. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, there's a lot of volatility because of that, and it's a nascent technology, a nascent asset, whatever you want to call it, but you, you do have to be aware of that, and that's, uh, but all those things getting exposed... This is good. When all the FTX went down and Luna went down and Tether, every time a scam falls, it's a progress, a step of progress. And yeah, obviously people are inherently get very excited about number go up um, theory. And when you have most of your net worth in an asset, you're going to be very positive and bullish on it. So that it is, it's all a fair point, but you see you know, new money coming into it. I mean, BlackRock, whether you think that's good, bad, or whatever, is there's more adoption happening. There's more fear uh, about fiat than ever before. So people are just looking for more alternatives. And then Bitcoin is one of them that they can be in control of. At least they could be holding their keys and not have to worry about their bank going under and being totally screwed. So in that regard, that's an advantage. But yeah, I mean, look, I'm not here to pitch Bitcoin. I, I I love Bitcoin. I love the decentralized aspect of it, but that's an individual decision. And that's what I always talk about with health too. It's, it's up to you. It's your life. I don't give a shit about what you do. I just want you to know what's going on. I want the average person to be aware of the corruption in the centralized system. If you want to put in the proof of work, then do it. But it's not my job to worry about the lives of other men and other people. It's my job to help you at least become aware of these topics. There's so many problems with the Bitcoin space, with the health space, because the sheep mentality just follows there too. Oh, I'm just going to buy Bitcoin because this guy did. Or I'm just going to go carnivore because that's what a lot of people are doing. And that person was just vegan for the last five years before that. Like, no, you are the problem. Your mindset is the issue. You can't make a decision for yourself. You got to go and do the research yourself. You got to put in the work and understand what's best for you in your situation right now and then execute on that. So that's my message. You're entitled to do whatever you want in your life. 
I just want people to be aware of the crazy atrocities that are going on in these systems and to wake up and be empowered to make their own decisions. To me personally, I just think the pandemic was kind of this tipping point, right? Like everything became exposed after the pandemic. The CDC, all these other government institutions are full of shit. I used to be a huge crypto Bitcoin fan. And people always say, do your own research, but it's like, what do you do? You go on to YouTube and you watch like say Coin Bureau, which is owned by a former Wall Street hedge fund. So these people are just pumping their own shit anyways, or what is it, Bit Bobby or whatever, the guy that's been suing everyone for talking shit about him. There's so much crap going on in the YouTube. You have the, the all these influencers. You got like Robert Kiyosaki, aka Rich Dad Poor Dad. He filed bankruptcy after the recession because most of his money was tied up in real estate. And he's talking shit about Warren Buffett. Like, okay, I'm going to believe Robert Kiyosaki over Warren Buffett. Like, fuck no. And that's kind of what's happened since the pandemic is this Pandora's box has, has opened because no one knows what's true anymore. No one knows what's fake. And bi- people are looking for a way out. I, I, I love the idea of Bitcoin because you're getting out of the centralized control. But then I see these people, it's like you replace one ruler with another ruler. You replace one king with another king. And when you look at the Gini coefficient, how centralized something is in terms of the wealth, the wealth inequality in Bitcoin is massive. And people don't even know the true wealth inequality because these actual Bitcoin holders are just moving Bitcoin back and forth between their own wallets. And they have numerous wallets and no one knows how. You might have a guy that actually controls the top 100 wallets and no one would ever know. Yeah, right. But you might think it's all, that's actually 100 different people. Like, obviously, it's all in the blockchain. We know what's going on, but no one actually knows who can, who controls that. Yeah, for sure. The wealth inequality is high, but it's also 14 years old. And every time a OG holder kind of cashes in, they're creating, they're decreasing that wealth inequality. Every time an exchange that's doing some shady shit goes down, they are decreasing that wealth inequality. So it's just going to take time for that to probably be more normalized. But, you know, if you bought in 2015 and you hold for 10, 15 years, you deserve to have that money if that's what you've gone through. But yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, doing your own research has become extremely challenging. Like you said, it's uh, you could Google one thing and the way you type it in. And if you're using Google or DuckDuckGo or what have you, it's going to be tough. That's why I go and find people who have different perspectives and go talk to them. Where did you get your research from? Where, you know, what are you listening to? And just absorb as much as you can and do your best. And it's never going to be perfect. And everything is kind of smoke and mirrors with the Fed and what's going to happen. And yeah, you, you can't really know, but doing your own research and finding out about the history of companies like you're saying, or the internet by funded by DARPA, that's all valuable information for you to, you know, better make a decision. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's freaking hard right now. And, uh, there's, there's always that struggle. So, but most people aren't even doing that basic thing. And most people just want someone to tell them what to do. So that's the reality of the world. What what does that mean going forward? I think it means that 95% of people, they're just always going to be looking for someone to lead them, whether that's in a good way or a bad way. But to me right now, a lot of people have woken up from COVID. There's at least some pushback on government intervention, which is good. And you would see it in presidential candidates right now. It's, you know, not that I love RFK, but the fact that he's even saying half the shit that he's saying is to me a good sign that people are tired of 
just being lied to from these centralized systems and whether he even gets a sniff or what happens, I don't know. But it's at least showing somewhat of a changing of the tide. But at the end of the day, it goes back to the macro environment. What's going to happen right now? Uh, they're going to keep hiking interest rates. Probably a lot of companies are going to feel that. Real estate's going to feel that. Could get really ugly in the next six to 12 months. And then what are they going to do? You know, Are they just going to turn on the money printer again? Or are they going to let an actual little recession play out and cleanse the over-leveraged companies as they should? But I wouldn't bank on that happening. And you can kind of position your strategy accordingly. But until that happens, we just don't know. And you could go get a passport in a third world country that you think is on the rise or move somewhere else. There's a lot of options out there. Which ones are great? I don't know. But I'm bullish on places like Wyoming, where people value on average freedom much higher. There's less regulations at the state level. It doesn't mean it's impenetrable from federal regulations at all, but it's to me at least a better place to live in the short time being. But until we know what kind of happens in the next five years, and maybe maybe we just maybe it takes 10, 15 years to even play out further. Like after the seventies happens, people are freaking out. It was the most volatile decade for inflation and interest rates and then kind of just calm down, you know, in the 80s, 90s. But we're playing on a thinner sheet of ice um, every single time there's more government intervention in the monetary policy. So I find that that's just going to continue to accelerate and we have to be ready for that. Yeah. The administrative state has taken too much power recently. The fact is, you know, live in a democracy. We live in a corporatocracy. We've probably lived in a corporatocracy for four decades. Yeah, that's what I say. You know, people like voting at the ballot box is like uh, a fallacy of your power to society, uh, your contribution, but your consumer purchasing power, I would argue, is, is far, far more impactful. So that's what I tell people. If you support your local producers and food is the easiest way to support something that's more decentralized, right? We're talking on the computers and microphones and things like that. It's pretty hard to buy this kind of stuff from like a small small company in your hometown, but your food, you buy, you know, most often you spend a lot of your budget on, you probably should spend more. The average person probably should spend more and you could actually control where that comes from and you could support your local community and you will pay more because food prices have been held so artificially low for so long and they're indicative of this industrial system. But if you do that, you're improving your food security and, and you're inherently having a small impact on the push towards a more decentralized society. You can try and just move the needle in that direction and as many facets of your life and hope that more people get on board and this becomes a, a bigger movement at the higher level. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be 10 million, pe 10 million people in LA and New York that need food from shipped in from wherever. And that's the reality of it. But you can control what, what's in your environment and what's in your sphere of influence. I found an interesting quote for your book that I like. You, you write in your book, Bitcoin and beef, criticism, similarities, and why decentralization matters. If you pay $10 per pound for grass-fed beef or bison, that is 63 cents per ounce. A bag of chips like Doritos costs anywhere from 40 to 50 cents per ounce. Similar ballpark and think of the nutrient 
quality difference? Better yet, what is the real cost of those food items when priced in long-term health outcomes? I got a master's in, in nutrition. And when I was going to school, people are always like, oh, yeah, it's more expensive to eat healthy. And in fact, it's not because when you actually just eliminate the crap food that you're spending money on, just buy food that's healthy, it's you're probably going to spend less. People would always be like, oh, like how do you lose weight? It's like, oh, eat less, which means you generally spend less. But people don't like that answer because that makes them guilty of the reason that they're overweight. People can say calories in, calories out is oversimplified. Maybe it is. You still have macronutrients. But for the most part, 80% of calories in, calories out is pretty much what your shape's going to look like. People want to overcomplicate this stuff. They want to act as if they're victims. But like, oh, like we can't afford to eat healthy. Well, just eat less food. Spend the money on quality food. Eat less vegetables because you're probably eating a bunch of pesticides and herbicides and other crap that spray down the stuff, not to mention that entire plant's genetically modified. Yeah, all valid points. I mean, calories are a very simplified way of... But it doesn't even matter because if you just eat real food, you'll inherently be more satiated. Like protein is a higher thermic effect and you'll just be full for longer. You won't want to snack on some bullshit processed foods. If you just eat real food, you're going to be fuller. You're going to be full of more nutrients. And yeah, you inherently will spend less money. How about cooking your own meals? How much does it cost to go out to eat? I mean, yeah, steak's so expensive. Yeah, it's $50 at a restaurant. You don't need to spend $50 on dinner. Like, you could buy five to seven pounds of ground meat for that that's really high quality, probably even more. Oh, what if you have an even more low time preference? Buy a chest freezer and buy a quarter cow. You're getting stuff for five, six, seven dollars a pound plus the steaks, and you learn how to cook roasts. They're actually delicious. Slow and easy wins the race. And bone broth, you get the bones, you get some fat, you cook with that. Be resourceful, but it takes too much time. What are you spending your time doing? I cook all my meals. I do like a whole bunch of shit. I still work out every day and sleep eight hours, but that's because I prioritize these things. I don't have time for X is just a shitty way to say it's not a priority. And when you prioritize the things that have a high ROI on your own life, like being healthy, relationships, things that will provide you fulfillment, they're always worth it. But you got to get out of that negative feedback loop first. First step, I would say, is, yeah, try to eat some real food. Second step, cook 90% of your meals or limit how often you go out to eat maybe only when you travel. Because there's always going to be circumstances when you're traveling or someone's birthday or well, I don't know, social things. But just shoot for something. Because even if you don't achieve it, it'll be progress from where you are now. I work with a bison ranch. People are like, oh, bison, that's so expensive. Yeah, compared to like Walmart beef, it's like triple the price. But guess what? This is real 100% grass-fed bison from Wyoming. And it still comes out per ounce on par with a lot of processed foods. So maybe you just need to realign your priorities and realize that this is worth paying for. We used to spend like 20% of our budget on food and now it's 10. And most of that's on eating out or getting stuff delivered, not the actual food itself. So, Do you think that's where people are just not able to take responsibility or what's the reason? I read 100 and 
I don't know, 150 books a year. And people are always like, oh, how do you read so many books? It's like, well, I just don't watch that much TV. Like I cook my own food. I have a slow cooker. It's really not that hard. Like I can read a book and cook at the same time. People try to act as if all this stuff is so challenging. But I mean, what were people doing before industrialization? People figured this shit out. It's not that hard. I love that saying. It's not that hard, people. Just do it. No, yeah, seriously. I think it's just sad. It's definitely a personal responsibility thing, but it comes from a young age. Do you know, I'm so grateful that my mom is from another country because we grew up eating home-cooked meals. I was the only one of my friends that ate home-cooked meals like every single night. And even I would eat dinner with my family and then sometimes I'd go get chicken wings with my friends afterwards. Like I would eat like two dinners just to be a part of the friend group. And that was foundational for me. And I had this high value towards quality foods, towards home-cooked meals. And that was installed in me. So in America, if you're a third-generation American, that just wasn't there. That's been lost. That was lost in like the 20th century. And now it's just, it's convenience. It's so much easier to just go buy something from a fast food chain or from pizza chain or something pre-made or like mac and cheese, like something that's really easy. And yeah, it works hard. Jobs are hard. I get that everyone is like maybe busting their ass. But then you couple that with like, yeah, like the fiat monetary system. Most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. There's people who make a hundred grand who are living paycheck to paycheck because the money is broken and they don't know how to actually spend money on things with value. So the incentives are misaligned. The money's broken. There's no knowledge passed down from previous generations. So it just confounds into this mess of a situation we have now. And once you get pulled into the Uber Eats, DoorDash, Netflix, professional sports, like Vortex, you're not going to get out of it very easily because, yeah, it's, I could just sit on my ass, watch the game and order sushi. Fuck yeah. It's great. When in reality, you're doing nothing productive for your life and you're not you know, yeah, you're not bettering yourself. Whereas someone like you, you throw a roast in, go read for two hours, come back, it's done, and booyah. So do you think that's planned or is that just the way that the system has unfolded? Now, I think it's very deliberate. Like the intention is clear for all these companies. The more they can capture your attention, the more money that you'll spend, the more of a consumer you will become. And that, again, just fuels the whole thing forward. Now, I think it is very intentional from all these companies, all these corporations, from the new world order. Whoever is running the world, it's got to be very deliberate, but right now. But when did that start? I don't know. I don't know what it was like in like the 70s or the 60s or the 80s. This wasn't really a norm, but it's just accelerated so fast and pop culture. And you have like LeBron and people selling like Sprite. It's like, yeah. You really like your community? You're just fueling an obesity and chronic disease epidemic. It's disgusting to me, but that's the U.S. And we have pharmaceutical advertisements and fast food, processed food advertisements for children and school lunches are just an abomination. At this point, I it has to be planned at this point to keep it going. But when that started, I, I don't know, but it's bad. H.G. Wells, the author, was the person that coined the term new world order in terms of pharmaceuticals there's only two countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical ads that's the united states and, and new zealand 
like you're talking about, you know, I lived in Europe for a while as well. It's just a healthier culture. And I think a lot of it, they do have a better food supply. If you've ever read Peter Turchin's book, he talks about elites and going in these cycles, but he basically says the cycle that ruins everything is an overproduction of elites. Right now we're in this cycle of too many elites. And what's the reason for that? Obviously, there's all, all sorts of reasons. Bitcoin is one of those reasons. But the pharmaceutical company, you can name all sorts of other reasons. I disagree with a lot of his book, to be honest, but I do agree with that point of his book. The European paradox is interesting. I also think it's like a cultural pride as well. You go down that rabbit hole. When you mix so many cultures in one place, you kind of lose the culture to some degree. Like, why does Italy have such good food? It's because that's their pride. That's their nationalism. They're not going to compromise. They said, fuck you to lab-based meat. You know why? Because they're Italians. They love extra virgin olive oil of high quality. You go to other countries and it's the same thing. There's like a more cultural pride to food. They have stricter regulations because of that. They have their whole downside. Half those countries are just straight up socialists. But they're smaller. They can get away. Sweden can be socialists. There's like, what, 7 million people and they're all the exact same person. But even now, they're having their own issues, right? But in the U.S., there's so many people, so many diverse backgrounds. The culture has been lost. And when you lose a cohesive binding force to your society, chaos is shortly to follow. And we've seen the degeneration of just all the social pressures because of that. Now it's all just in an easy way for whoever's in charge to take advantage through these social movements that uh, give people a sense of uh, pride, a sense of this is what I'm standing for. There's no war. You know, wars also give people like a sense of pride because people come together. There's no cohesion in this country at all. And that's one thing that I've, I've noticed traveling a bunch to Europe that is, uh, I think, indicative in the food supply Clearly. We're here with Tristan Scott, author of Bitcoin and Beef. As a 27-year-old, where do you see the U.S. headed the next, say, five or ten years? That's a good question, man. I'm pretty optimistic that we can at least stall and maybe have a period of changing of the tides, but it'll probably get worse before it gets better in the next five years. It needs to. There's people who literally just don't do shit. Nobody wants to work. Somehow inflation's the highest it's been since the 70s. Nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to do hard labor. Everyone just wants to be a TikToker and just blog on the internet. And all they're getting paid is in affiliate marketing or for data with ads. It's just not sustainable. I hope it gets worse. I hope people get a wake-up call that we need more fundamentally sound jobs or people working, putting in things of value. And this woke mind virus has infected people. They're not doing stuff at their remote jobs at all. There's so much turnover at corporations. I still work for a big corporation and the amount of turnover, people just jump from job to job, like year in, year out and just play the game. And, you know, to be honest, it's just like so counterproductive. And these companies 
a lot of them could probably lay off half their employee force and and be fine or take a 10% hit for, you know, a 40% slash of their payroll. But nobody will work at a local restaurant and try to do things of actual quality and use quality ingredients. I think it's going to get uglier before it gets better in the short term. But I'm hopeful in five to 10 years, people have a wake up call. Maybe we'll demand more from, you know, our, our politicians. I'm not saying that's for sure going to happen. So I'm just going to keep preparing myself to be better equipped uh, to be even more outside of the system than I am now. And that's all I can do. You know, I've read studies because everyone is like, oh, people don't want to work anymore. But then you read studies and it's like a lot of people that had two family incomes before the pandemic. After the pandemic, it's like, okay, I got a kid. I was working at serving food. And they basically realized that the amount of money that they were making to work that second job just went to daycare. So it's like, why would I go back into the workforce when I'm just spending all the money I'm making on daycare when I could just stay home and actually spend time with my child? And then, of course, the the older people that were close to retirement age, some of them that were like, yeah, I don't necessarily know if I want to get the vaccine. I'll just retire because I'm retirement age. When you actually look at the studies and see why do we have this shortage of workers, a lot of it's explainable with fairly obvious reasons. If you're going to give someone $20 an hour to to work their ass off, they'll do it. But why should someone work their ass off for $8 an hour when your your rent's going to be $1,500? I'm not going to work my ass off for some corporation for $9 an hour, and nor do I think anyone else should. No, that's a great point. I didn't know that. That makes sense about the statistics. I'm more so talking about the mindset or like younger people my age, like all these product managers, like just working for Facebook or whatever. They're really not contributing to society too much or to their company and they're making like a shit ton of money. So I think that's going to kind of change. Yeah. The everyday, if you're a restaurant, you got to pay people more and then you got to charge more. And that's just the reality of how it goes. It's probably worth it to pay your employees more because then they'll stick around and they'll do a better job. You can't get away with just lowballing people left and right. If, if that's the case, then shit, power to all those people who stayed at home and what have you. My, my sister's in that boat right now. She just decided to go work for the daycare. <laughs> you know, she's uh, she's made less, making less money, but no. Daycare is like $1,000 a month or I don't even know. It's like an obscene amount of, of money. So yeah, spend more time with your family. I'm, I'm all for that. And especially if you're elderly and try to get my dad to retire too. Um, it's all your specific situation, but maybe we don't need 20 restaurants in like four blocks. Maybe we should need three good ones. And there's an overinflation of just like shit companies. And that's what really needs to be cleansed, I think. You're talking about priorities. The pandemic, I think it awakened a lot of people, but it also showed people their priorities. Like, I'm working this shit job to pay my daycare, buy some Doritos. What's the point of even being here? I'm not spending any time with my family. It's the mainstream media that's like, oh, these people don't want to work anymore. When if you actually dig into the data, you're like, well, why don't these people want to work anymore? Who's not working anymore? The unemployment's been over for like two years. I mean, it's... People go, oh, they're living on unemployment. Like, no, they're fucking not. They haven't lived on unemployment in two years. Like, obviously, that's not the reason. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why should they? I mean, do you run to work for these like large corporations that don't really care about your well being at all? You're just like a number. So, I'll power to all these people that are starting their own businesses or influencers. If you're making it work, like, 
that's that's cool like good for you i just don't think it's gonna last for a lot of these folks but i i I, uh, I think companies need to change kind of how they treat their employees. Do you think that the the podcast kind of spear will get bigger just because people are losing trust in mainstream, whether it's CNN or Fox or you know, MSNBC, et cetera? Yeah, 100%. I think we've already seen that. You see RFK is not even allowed to debate Biden or you know, Biden will have a stroke or something on stage probably. That's why. But he's gone to podcasts and done really well for himself. Joe Rogan brings in more people than CNN and Fox News. All these big companies are just, they're run by their advertisers, so they're captured. So do you want to talk and listen for your news by a network that's totally captured and biased in all their opinions that they say and like politically programmed? Probably not. You want to listen to real people talk, kind of like you and I are and we even share like pretty different perspectives in some regards and it's like real. That's why... People gravitate towards this. So yeah, I think it'll continue to be a very popular thing. There's a lot of podcasts out there. So of course it can be overwhelming, but 98% of podcasts, I'm pretty sure don't make it past like the first year or half a year. People will go on a show and, and talk about what they think is important just to do it. And it's my favorite way of engaging with folks. I love talking to people. It's way better than writing stuff online because the tone is obviously is better received. So um yeah, podcasting 2.0, I know, or 3.0, I don't know. Adam Curry's trying to pioneer that with even more decentralized podcasting with paying in Bitcoin and, and streaming for sats, which is cool. There's a kind of a shift going on right now in social media too. So you talk about YouTube, you got to be careful with what you say. So censorship is still real, but I think there's going to be more competition popping up. There already is with Noster and Rumble and other... Tr- very right-wing areas like True Social. But, you know, it's kind of fun time to navigate this space. And yeah, we'll uh, we'll see kind of how it goes. But right now, podcasts are popular for a good reason. And I think they're a great way to spread information. You're talking about the censorship. I have three strikes on my YouTube account. You know, I'm like, I've, we got one strike for my fiance got her current job. She got a strike for having a post about saying she didn't like the term birthing person instead of mother of course youtube didn't like that that was a that was a strike right there but it's it's interesting when you talk to people that aren't podcasters and they have zero clue what's going on with the censorship in america yeah i'm pretty aware i'm actually launching a youtube channel or i guess you could call it a rumble channel as well very soon with my buddy here in wyoming more focused on just like outdoors things that we do and we're yeah, we're going to be kind of like ourselves. So inherently, we'll probably get a couple of strikes on YouTube, I'd imagine, in the uh, near future. So we're going to see what Rumble's like, and it'll be fun. It's sad that all these companies are captured by the wokeism that is uh, very pervasive in the liberal minds, but you can kind of just do your best, and, and um, the truth resonates at the end of the day. The truth will always find a way to come forward somehow just keep talking to people and people will value what you have to say just two final questions where can people find you get a hold of you it's the easiest place to buy your book bitcoin and beef and then what is a closing thought for the viewing and listening audience you can find me i'm most active on twitter at bitcoin and underscore beef a n d underscore beef my book's on amazon it's also on oshi app if you want to pay with bitcoin Amazon's probably easiest. Also on Instagram, Tristan underscore health. 
YouTube, podcast, Spotify. It's all in there. It's called Decentralized Radio. Launching a new YouTube Rumble channel, Wyoming-based, about outdoor stuff, if you care about that. And uh, closing thoughts. Well, we talked a lot about a lot of great things. Uh, this was a great podcast, Jesse, so thanks for having me on. I love the fresh perspective and kind of the back and forth, especially on Bitcoin, too. Because, again, you should not take anyone's word uh, in stone for anything. Like, the whole reason we got into all this mess in the first place is because the sheepishness of our society and it's okay to look for guidance and direction but really just take the accountability take the personal responsibility to want to live the most optimal life because you can and it's fucking amazing when you get to that point and when you see that progress but you realize you're gonna have to put in the work but once you do you realize it's like what Jesse said earlier, like it's really not that hard. And there's so many resources available to you. There's too many. So you're going to have to sift through a lot of bullshit. But again, consider all the perspectives and form your own conclusion. And then just try things out. At the end of the day, just try stuff. You're not going to know what something's like unless you kind of physically learn about it. And that's what I've realized, at least for me. I'm a very do it physical learner. I've tried some things that didn't work out. I've tried a bunch of other things that have, and that's life. Uh, don't be afraid to make mistakes. That's the only way you learn. So Tristan Scott, who is the co-host of Decentralized Radio, author of Bitcoin and Beef, Criticism, Similarities, and Why Decentralization Matters, joined us today on our podcast. Thank you so much, Tristan. And I hope we can do a follow-up at some point. Definitely. Yeah, always open to chatting. This is a great conversation, Jesse. Thanks for having me. My dear friends, that is it for this episode of El Podcast. Once again, if you're not yet subscribed, please subscribe on YouTube as well as Rumble. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.